Every person has a story, but not everyone has a place to tell it. I'm Frank Swoboda. I've interviewed amazing people all over the planet. I want you to meet them. This week, the most interesting person you've never heard of is... I'm Mike Hazel. I'm the most interesting person you've never heard of because I was Frank's roommate in college. And I know a lot of things that many people don't. <laughs> you have all the dirt. I've got all the dirt. You and I are... Old. This, I'm going to go back... This is old. We are old school Spokane. We are old school. You know, when I, when I, when I, 19, yeah, 72. Well, right. And, and I always think of right you. Right before and, Expo. Right. So you and I, you know, you were my roommate and you went, we went to high school together. We played grade school basketball and football and stuff against each other. We went to high school together. We were roommates in college. And now we, and now we, you know, hang out and, tour the diner dives of Spokane and we still, we still do stuff. But I, I always look at, you were the cake eater from the South Hill. Cataldo <laughs> cake eater. <laughs> For Spokane people, they will appreciate that. And I'm the North side, Shadle St. Charles blue collar kid, right? How, how is it that we've stayed friends? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Well, so my dad was a humanities professor with four kids who made sure that all of his kids went to parochial school. So if I wanted a pair of jeans, uh, I, I had a paper route. I worked. I literally dug ditches. And when I got to Cataldo, I got in some scruffs because I went to Wilson Elementary. Got a great elementary education. Wilson's a great school. Absolutely. Russell Wilson Elementary, they tried to name it a oh, few years okay. ago. Instead yeah. of Woodrow. Yeah. Tried to rename but, it. But... Uh, no, and I got to Cataldo, it was, it was rough. It was a culture shock. And so I kind of always... Wait, what grade were you in when you went there? Seventh grade. Oh, I so didn't I know went you went first that late. sixth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you're really not a cake eater. <laughs> I'm still going to call you a cake eater. <laughs> you know, it's good crew. But back, I remember this, Frankie. It was a lot easier back in the day, growing up in the 80s. And I remember there was no social media, no cell phones, um, no I remember prep no being, kidding. <laughs> being pretty, I mean, it had money and wealth in certain areas, but it drew from so many parts of Gonzaga prep. Yeah. Gonzaga prep. And it, it was a kind of a, as I recall a jeans and t-shirts kind of culture. It has always been a pretty blue collar place. Yeah. And you know, a lot of people have come through there. It's funny cause I've, I, John Nielsen and I talked about this, that it, it's, um, you know, there's a lot of kids who had a lot of money. And there were a lot of kids who didn't. Yeah. And I always, I was the kid who didn't, but you know, my dad was an architect. It wasn't like, you know, he wasn't in the professional world or whatever, but, but eight kids, you know, it was a lot. I mean, we were not the rich kids, you know, yeah. at all. And, and there were a lot of people that uh, I've talked to that had money over the years that, that had money during all that. And I think it was, I think it was easier on you and I to go to that school than it was on the kids with tons of money. And you probably hung around more of those guys than I did, but, and girls, but I know a lot of them that, you know, really had the dollars, right. Mm -hmm. And grew up with that. And I think it was a burden for them. I think it was harder for them, you know, than it was for you and I, cause we had to work for everything we got. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but that, that's sort of been, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I think not everybody. It's not a blanket statement for sure. But I think there was a bit of a, I mean, they also had to have a bit of a thick skin because if they were, That's they would I mean. get, they would get teased about it. They would bit. get teased about having the money. Yeah. Oh, I know. But I, I think didn't more see than... any problem with that whatsoever. I did not either. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how it, they got, let's keep it I wonder real. who teased them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but I mean, it was all in good, I mean, I, it, it was all, I think, in, 
good fun. Right? No, it was. Yeah, I, I still am in contact with right. all those folks. Yeah, me too. No. And uh, and then we went to Gonzaga University. Freshman. What do you remember about... this? Is So this is... A part of this is payback for you. <laughs> That's right. And you know what I'm talking about. You invited... I invited you for a, a class lecture. Right. Okay. So so let's set the stage here. So you and I were... We, we had the chance to... I don't know how we became roommates, but we get to pick our roommate or something. But you and I picked, we were roommates in DeSmet, which is the oldest dorm on campus. DeSmet 106? Right in the middle of campus, corner room. It's, you know, the legendary, the dorm that Bing Crosby, you know, fictitiously everyone thinks threw a, when he went to school there, he was in that dorm and threw a piano over the roof or something, off the roof or something, which probably never happened. But that, you know, it's a very pretty famous, there's a lot of tradition there. It's the closest thing to, I would say like a, a frat yeah. <laughs> at Gonzaga, you know, it was all bo- all boys still is, I believe. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and we had the corner room, which was handy if you were trying to get a keg in because it had two windows. That's what, that's what I remember most about that room. A little bigger. <laughs> <laughs> I know you work at the university now, so you probably can't. Are you going to deny all of this? I will so deny I was the one nothing. Got, I was, I'm the one that got the keg in. I'm there. about guilt, purification, and redemption. <clears throat> So, uh, so fast forward, you become a professor at Gonzaga years, years later. And I did, you asked you mistakenly, unfortunately for Not you. Not mistakenly, but I did, I had to <laughs> answer to a lot from students who. You, you asked me, me to, carpet. you asked me to, as a guest into your, into your class, if I recall, right? Yes. Yes. Right. To talk about all the great creative work you're doing as a comm major. Right, right, right. And uh, what did I do? <laughs> I think you just, you came in uh, and talked a lot about the work, but you also were not, you know, you were just having a good, you know, you were, you were, you were keeping it entertaining. <laughs> but I did, did I tell, what did I tell them? You talked about Sleepmate, <laughs> but you did not, you did not elaborate on what that was. Okay, so. So you so allowed. Let's, let's tell people what Sleepmate is. It, it is a white noise machine. <laughs> <laughs> Again, John Nielsen. And if you remember, we had that radiator that sounded in the morning like somebody was taking a wrench Kung. to it. Kung. So yeah. it's that little thing. You'd... Right. So Mike had a white noise machine that basically, you know, when he goes to sleep, he plugs it in and it goes. <sighs> and I was I like, still have one, by the way. <laughs> you do? <laughs> I do. Um, of course you do. And I'm like, what the hell is this, Hazel? And you're like, oh yeah, I can't sleep without it. And I'm like, I'm like this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. So we had, you know, had this white noise machine, and this is the story I told, I think. And what I remember about it is, you know, we live in Spokane, so we go home, you know, holidays. We're going home to our house, but our parents' home, you know. So I went home, and you know, having been on campus for a semester, go home for holidays, and I cannot sleep without the goddamn white noise sleep mate <laughs> for like a week <laughs> and Sorry I was cursing that. you out so bad but I think when you talk to the students and I might have been out of the room or something I think though. you weren't there yeah and <laughs> that seems right maybe I think you said something like you know we were roommates ask make sure you ask Dr. Hazel about his sleep mate and you See, that's left better. it at that, right? Of course. That's way better. And so I walk in and I get these weird <laughs> smiles and looks and there you go. Uh, weren't you a little proud of me? 
Frankie, I've always been <laughs> from the All moment right. I, when you were in eighth grade, you already had that that sportscaster ability, calling it for the the St. Charles. That's game. true. I did call I all did, the way up through ASB. I did call look at you now. grade school sports, and you were good at it. Really, and, good. I mean, public address guy. Yeah, I made up a lot of fake. I would make up fake and DJs and mixers and things. All yeah, kinds of stuff. I, DJ, that's true. I did do all that. Yeah, I was voted um, most likely to host the Oscars in our, our our senior year in high school, which I think is the coolest thing you could ever be voted. I mean, best looking. Who cares? Because they're all going to get bald at some point. <laughs> but I'm still ready right now. They're you know they they couldn't host the Oscars for a long. You know they were like couldn't find people to host it. I'm just like I'm ready. I got voted it. I could do it right now. Yeah. I, I got nothing to lose. So In the meantime, you have so generously right. hosted every class reunion since we... That's true. That's as true. As the, the after party. You're the glue. Uh, the after party. Well, thank you. The after party of every one of our 10 year, 20, 25 has been at our my office. Yeah. So the next one, the last one was supposed to be here or at our old place. So the next one will be here whenever that is. Outstanding. Coming up. <clears throat> so after after Gonzaga, you go to Japan. Yes. Which I thought is so I thought it was so interesting. Dave McCaw went to Japan too. He did. I actually visited him when he was in Nagasaki. <clears throat> so Dave was a classmate of ours at Gonzaga Prep. Right. And what was that experience like? Visiting Dave or <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, did you guys speak in Japanese or uh, he'd been there a little longer. He was there with his sisters, too. The McCaw family oh, is a very right. impressive group. They are. They are impressive. Uh, no, but I... So I had gone to Italy my junior year, right? Caught the travel bug. Oh, the economy right. was in the tank in 1990. So you went to Florence, Gonzaga's Florence yep. program. All the cake eaters from South Hill go there, but anyway. Go yeah, ahead. I took I me a while to pay off those loans, fella. <laughs> Student loans. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, I just kind of caught the bug. And then... It was literally a Jack and Dan's conversation where one of my roommates that I'd lived with was there. Jesuit Connection got him to teach at a all-girls junior Catholic college in Southern that? Japan. <clears throat> Scott Bailey. Hmm. He's actually our professor now yeah. in Wenatchee, Wenatchee Valley College. Wow. Same place where your corner booth is from. from. That's right, in the other room, yeah. <clears throat> so what was it like? I mean, it was amazing. It was summer of 92. Got there, did not... So I knew what I immediately knew what it was like to be illiterate and unable to communicate because everything was in Japanese wow. characters. So I couldn't read anything. I could really barely speak. And what I found was in Japan in general, but in southern Japan in particular, I mean, the people are incredibly warm-hearted, hospitable. So uh, I landed on my feet and I, I ran into some folks from that were... AETs, which were like associate English teachers paid by the, the Japanese government to go in and teach conversation in Japanese schools. So a group of Canadians, Australians, Americans. And then I got a job teaching at a conversation school. And you know, How old a, were you then? This, I was 24. Been, yeah. yeah 24 ish. Wow. And uh, it was intense. I mean, there were a couple times I thought, I don't know if I can hack this. I may, that, that really intense culture shock. But stuck it out, and within a year, it was amazing. I had a motorcycle. I had a lot of friends. I was, I could speak more conversationally fluently, and obviously changed the rest of my life because my spouse of twenty six years was was from that city. So here, here's to here's to Izumi. Yes, yeah, she's amazing. Okay. So wh how how did that go? How did you meet her? 
great story. So her little brother uh, had kind of gone to a really elite high school, Cake Eater High School of, of the Cake Eater of Japan. Of Japan. La Salle. <laughs> they probably didn't call it cake the... though. What would they call it? The cakey. <laughs> Do they eat cake in Japan? Absolutely. Okay, I'm learning uh, so much. From you. So my literally my first night there, uh, my friend who picked me up took me to their house I thought he was an AET because he spoke with this really thick Australian accent and he was so dark he was wearing uh, surf shorts and a t-shirt <clears throat> really friendly and uh, we start talking and drinking and uh, and I said well where are you from and he, he said it says in this thick surfy accent I'm from, from Jap I'm from Japan I'm Japanese so what's that? He goes, well, I've lived in Surfer's Paradise for six years, and I surfed down there. So he kind of gave up on the typical salaryman company life and went his own way. Wow. Ended up opening up a, a, a bar called Down Under, of all things. He Down Under? He has another restaurant bar called Modern Bali, because he likes to go to Bali and surf wow. and whatnot. And then that's, that's how, that was my introduction to the family. And Can I get him on the podcast? I think you could. Okay, good. We just have to Write set up down. a good uh, video one. We need some interesting people. Yeah, but that was that was a really a synchronistic kind of event. So, so he, how, how did the connection to Zumi happen? And, I think I was how, at. He used to host barbecue parties, and his parents were really uh, just really hospital and open. So foreigners would often gather there. We just kind of BYO. Okay. And uh, Izumi was there one night, and we just kind of started talking and. 26 years. There you go. Two girls? Two daughters. Wow. Soon to be a grandfather. Oh, in congratulations. Thanks, Frank. Wow. That's, cr whoa. That's crazy. Intense. Nick, don't get any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're in Japan and then you come back and, you know, it is important to mention that your dad, to me, was a legend. Mm -hmm. And I think to a lot of people at Gonzaga, like, you know, head of the department, right? Communications department. Yeah, he was a dean for a while. He was professor in communication. Harry Bud of... Hazel, mm -hmm. just sort of a legendary guy. And I, he was one of my favorite professors when I was there and had a huge impact on my life. What was it like to be taught by your dad? He, you know, it's interesting retrospectively. I, he did not want me in his classes and I understand why, because study was about third on my list of priorities. <laughs> At, You're going to give him a bad days. name, pal. <laughs> no, but I mean, he was, a, he was a good teacher. I got very serious in grad school because the Murrow School was a very intense place to go to grad at school. At Washington State. Yeah, Washington State. Uh, now the Murrow College. But, you know, it was, it was great. And now, you know, now being a professor and um, having the benefit of age and experience, he was really impactful. But here's the main thing. I still hear from students that had him in the 70s or 80s that will come up to me and say, you know, I was going through this difficult time and your dad said this or your dad helped me with this. And it was, I think, who was it? Kurt Vonnegut, somebody, people may not necessarily remember what you tell them, but they will certainly remember how you made them feel. Mm -hmm. And there was something about him, and I think a lot of profs at GU, that the relational piece is really important. But it, it, he obviously impacted a ton of people. So, you know, I'm, you know, I try to emulate that in working with students. Did you, and it's amazing how just the little things you can do can 
make an impact. Did you want to be a professor because of him or not want to be? How did that, you know what I mean? Some people are like, I don't do anything my dad did. I mean, I had that. Actually, I'll show you my experience with that. Yeah. I, had, I had the same experience. My dad wanted, you know, as an architect and yeah. designed 800 buildings in his career, which is amazing. And he was a phenomenal artist um, and, and really, really good at the craft. You know, he, he built some amazing buildings. Six on campus at Gonzaga. Right. And <clears throat> most of them still there. <clears throat> and... And, and he always wanted one of his kids to take over the business and be an architect. And we were all like, we're not doing that. I don't, I mean, I don't have any artistic ability at all. There's no way I come. Oh, yes, you no do, way, not a, no, I can't draw a thing. But you're um, a cultural creative for sure. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I was like, I don't want to do that. I, I mean, I'm never going to do what he did. It's sort of what I sort of said to myself. And then, you know, several years later, fortunately he was still alive. It sort of hit me one day. So I was explaining what I do. I'm like, I do exactly what he did you know, right, right. in this business, you know, come up with something from nothing, an idea that didn't exist that does, you know, designing something that turns into, you know, creating content, something that lasts, you know, the videos that we've, that I've created over the last 30 years, you can still watch and they still exist and they still had, they had an impact. His buildings are still around. You know, there, there was a uh, dealing with clients and having a balanced art and commerce and this whole battle between making something cool and making something that, you know, structurally lasts, right? His whole, you know, the, the whole idea of, of, for an architect of, you know, form and function, like it's got to work, but it also has to be cool. Right. <clears throat> so it, it just really hit me. I'm like, wow, that's exactly what I do. Did you have a similar experience? Which, which side did you lie on or did it matter at all? You were just born to be a professor. You know, it was interesting. I always wanted to be a lawyer and my brother, a year younger than me, Joel, is an lawyer. attorney. Two of your brothers are lawyers. Both of them. One's a judge. judge. Yeah, that's Judge right. Tony. Judge Tony Hazel. Dude, oh, thank goodness he's a judge. He's a good dude. He's a good guy. But, so I had always wanted to be a lawyer because I really, I looked up to my grandfather who practiced in Yakima for a lot of years. Oh, I didn't know that. He'd done amazing work. He never... Never talked about it himself. And as is typical, after he passed, there was all these stories of pro bono cases mm. he took to the state Supreme Court, helping an indigent mother with medical bills. I mean, example after example of that. After he stopped practicing, he went to work in the clinic, uh, in the legal clinic to help uh, immigrants, you know. Wow. So good guy, really good guy. But I, when I went to Italy, it kind of just... Cr- created a travel bug and then I enjoyed teaching in Japan but I was fascinated by intercultural communication because I loved you but it never prepared me for that global kind of experience mm-hmm. right so not only as I started to become more fluent in Japanese in some ways I became a worse communicator because I was using the same kind of patterns we would use in that are acceptable in this culture, which could be viewed as too aggressive or couldn't get away with it there, <laughs> right? There. Or just be viewed as rude and aggressive. <clears throat> so I was fascinated by that. And then uh, the Merle School is great. It is a was a I had a great experience down there. So I so once I had kind of decided I was going to go back to grad school, I was a TA at. The, at the Murrow School, teaching 102 speech to college freshmen. Your dad taught me speech. And I, a lot of it was just I applied what I learned from really good teachers. And one teaching award, I mean, it wasn't, I didn't, it wasn't rocket science. I was just like clear and <laughs> considerate right, yeah. and <clears throat> available. And, uh, and that kind of set me on the path. And so once I got married, I interrupted PhD work to go back to Japan because Izumi's parents were not happy about the uh, impending 
you know nuptials nuptials <clears throat> really so a little damage control uh, oh so you were on. the uh, you were the she was in trouble they loved me until I showed interest in until their... you they realized you were not <laughs> Japanese <laughs> I showed interest in their daughter but un- understandable and uh, so and en- ended up getting a job teaching there and stayed for a while wow and it was all it was all great uh, do you I, remember the day you asked your dad or told your dad you wanted to be a a communications professor because <laughs> that must have been cool for him mm-hmm. I would guess you know when I was I think so when I was over in Japan oh it was he, he was super proud every time he talked about you to me he was so proud of you well thanks Frankie yeah I remember thinking about it as an option for a while and uh, I remember Talking to him while I was in Japan, he said, well, you should apply to the WSU. Yeah, it's a good school. Great, great school. And so that that'll also set the path because I worked with really good professors down there. That yeah. I was, I thought, I, in fact, I almost dropped out half, halfway through the first semester. Like, I'm an imposter. Do not belong here. <laughs> not cut out for grad school. I'm an imposter. <laughs> imposter syndrome is a real thing for grad students. <laughs> but, you know, they just pushed me really really hard and it's like okay I, I, I can I can do this yeah that's really cool did, yeah. so you were teaching there at the same time your dad was at Gonzaga you, or yeah, did you get the Gonzaga job were you teaching there at the same time you were weren't we you? were for a little while I had applied after I didn't finish my PhD in 04 I'd applied to a number of schools I actually got a tenure track job at University of a uh, tenure track offer from UT Pan Am in McAllen, Texas, like right on the border. Whoa! And I got a fixed term offer from Gonzaga, and I just it was sort of a leap of faith. But I said, "All right, I'm gonna throw my cards here and see what may." And come. you're still here. How many years you've been there? Since '04. Gosh, so we're looking at you know, 17 years. Wow! And there's still a Hazel. And Gonzaga. There is still Hazel. The Some say we lack department. imagination, but I say it's, she's a good place. <laughs> so your dad struggled a little at the end, right, with dementia. He did. What was that experience like for you? I, I, I didn't experience that with my parents. My dad was starting to get a little bit of that when he was 80. And I was, you know, he ended up passing away at 80. And I, in some ways I was grateful because I didn't want to have to see that, you know. Was that really hard? It was hard. Yeah. I was, I didn't. We didn't know about it until sort of later, and it was almost after he retired. But there were little things that we started to notice, and then he, you know, he loved teaching. It was it oh. was his <clears throat> hobby. It was his was passion. Like, it was his life. He was right? like a he was like a game show host, a little or a you know what I mean? Like he was like a host. Yeah, you know, he had this that great voice, and everything was. It was almost like he was. He, had, he was reading cue cards or something. Like the guy was so elegant. Yeah. He was just like unflappable, and you didn't feel like you were being taught, but you were like, "Whoa, I'm in the presence of like, you know, this this amazing guy that was so prepared." Yeah. But but I bet at the end it, it probably got a little hard. It was. I remember he had written a paper to submit to a conference, right? And he was a, he had always been strict with my writing, very Aristotelian, you know, Jesuit trained, have your three points. He was a he was a good writer. And he wrote several books, right? He Pub, did. Very published yep. guy. Yeah. And and I he showed me the the manuscript and it it just kind of disappeared after the fourth paragraph. And I asked him, I said, "Dad, so what's, you know, this is the questions he would ask me in high school and mm-hmm. college. What's your central thesis statement?" Um, I said, what, what's the central theme and how are you developing this? And he, he just, 
he couldn't answer it mm. cogently. And I, as I started to think about it a little more retrospectively, there are certain forms of dementia where the individual, it's almost kind of like a pilot getting hypoxia, which is why they train like military pilots to start to become aware of their losing <clears throat> cognitive function. Mm -hmm. right? Where they don't, they're not aware of They're it. not aware of the gradual loss of capacity. There are other forms of dementia where there people are very aware. So it's it, it's even more frustrating. Right. And I think my dad right. was the former. Right. Yeah, Tony Bennett's going through that right now. He's 95. I, right, with Alzheimer's. And, and right. With Alzheimer's. Yeah. And my I was fortunate when he was in Spokane at 89. Yeah. To take Amazing. My, to take my kids. Yeah. To that really limited it was tough to get a ticket and we got a ticket. My brother helped us get a ticket. <clears throat> they will never forget it. You know, they were, I don't know, Nick was 21 or something to watch this 89 year old guy absolutely kill it and sound like he's 60 or 50, you know, know. like just amazing. And, and to now watch him, you know, they, you know, CBS at uh, 60 minutes did a great piece on that. And basically he doesn't know that he has it. Right. It was your dad that I think so until mm. it, he got a formal diagnosis. So towards okay. the end when he, you know, stepped out of his role. He, uh, I think he wanted to keep going. He called me into his office one time and he said, you know, Mike, I went blank in class today. And he was obviously really disrupted because he was a dialed, oh yeah, well-prepared. Incredibly impeccable. And so, and I remember how disrupted he felt. And then he went to the doctor and they said, well, they've got me on these statins. I'll try to get off of those. But Eventually, I think it was a, a diagnosis, and he kind of kept that quiet for a while uh, until he decided to step away. So, but once we all knew, that helped. <laughs> because sure. Like, the, the mystery oh, was solved. Okay, oh, that's what's sense. going on. Yeah. Now, I will also have to tell you, like, you know, he passed pretty suddenly in his, yeah. in his seven, early 70s, right. like an aortic dissection. And, right. Um, but I, I will always admire the way he navigated that space because we're all only temporary in a, temporarily oh, enabled, yeah. right? Especially so, me. <laughs> all, right. So, so every day matters. But, but to see that happen to him on someone who this relied giant. on his... Yeah, he was a giant. He relied on his cognitive oh, capacity. It was his tool. His, and so to see that go away, I thought he handled it with, a, with grace, probably a lot more than I would. <laughs> well, hopefully you won't. <laughs> yeah, amen so to that. The, so there's that. Uh, amen to that. Well, the other, the other thing I wanted to, I know we wanted to talk about a little bit is um, uh, circle plus minus. So this yes, is, yes. this is a, you know, I've, I've talked about it a little bit on the show, but basically it's uh, a tool that I uh, created for my team mm -hmm. when I took my business over. Uh, from a partner and and essentially there were only four of us working here and and I was I really really realized I've got about six months before we're out of business if we can't figure out how to do this and there were only four of us that um, were were putting you know that were running the company and so we we just got on a whiteboard which I didn't really ha hadn't done a lot of and now I do all the time with clients and projects and just identified who's doing what, <laughs> like, what do you do? What do you do? And when, then what's not getting done here? And it was really important to me to, that I got, if I'm going to own a business, I want at least, I want to love going to work there every day. Yeah. You know, I, that's why I'm doing it. If, you know, I could go to work for somebody else and, and still could, but I, I love going to work at 
I want to go to work at a place I love to go. So it was really important for me to try to focus on what, what is it that I love to do? What if I just did that? You know, mm -hmm. sort of a mm -hmm. dream question. <clears throat> and we identified that and, and just started circling, like, I'm just going to circle the stuff that I love to do. And then, so it was this very organic process. Oh, huh? incredibly organic. I was all, was, I've always wanted to ask you how you came up with uh, absolutely organic because ultimately we were just trying to see what was slipping through the cracks. That right. was really the goal. With four of us, we had been at 12 people the year before, about 18 months before there were 12. And this was really the advent of you know desktop publishing and desktop editing. And we just didn't need all the equipment that we needed before. And we started to work directly with clients and not have not go through ad agencies. It's just a big cultural change yeah. in our industry and a big shift. And so we kind of like, wow, could we, how lean could we be? You know, and people hire us, they hire me because of the work that I do and, mm -hmm. and they'll still hire me. Let's just be efficient about it. So yeah, we circled what we loved. We put a plus next to what we didn't mind doing. Like I don't mind, you know, taking the trash out. It's okay. Or doing the laundry at my house. Um, uh, and the minus next to the stuff that we hated doing, like, just like, oh, I just, you know, you know, the stuff you hate to do or that you've conned yourself into thinking that you could do, but somebody else, you know, could do 10 times better. So we, we made that list and it was instantly the most powerful part right away was, you know, there were four of us there and one of us instantly went, your minus is my plus. I'll mm -hmm. take that. Mm -hmm. And, and we, we got rid of half of the minuses because they were somebody else's pluses. And then we kind of went, what if we just got rid of all the minuses? Like what we could outsource that or let's hire somebody to do that. And we knew what we needed then help with. And it was just amazing. Six months later, we did more in that six months, that year, than that, that, that next year with four people, we did more than uh, more revenue than we had with 12 the year before. That's and, amazing. And it was amazing. All four of us, myself and the three and three, you know, teammates, employees, all three of them stayed with me for 10 years. Wow. And we did it every year or so, six months, and kind of reimagined what do we, what do you work, how, because our job changes, the world changes, this business changes fast, right. technology changes, what we provide our clients changes. So that's kind of where it, it spawned, was just an indefinite, you know, mother of invention, man. We needed to know how this was gonna work. So then I started to realize, wow, this could work for lots of people. I started using mm -hmm. it with my clients. And then friends, you know, and you're, yeah. you're one of the people that yeah, was, I just started talking about because you, you are in the world of communications. And this, when I started to tell you about it, I think you realized it instantly in a way I hadn't, that this is a tool of, this is kind of a cool communications tool. Well, yeah, really organizational consulting tool. And that's right? what and you a leader, do, right? And a leadership tool. Because you, yeah. you came out of that, that part of, of Gonzaga's curriculum, right? Uh, I've done it in grad school. Like I supervise a strategic and organizational communication concentration in our graduate program. So, and I'm, wor I'm working with really incredible people that are in big companies like Boeing, military, to really small nonprofits and people in education, law enforcement. And so you know, we're seeing people that are experiencing the, <laughs> the challenges uh, and opportunities in, in organizations. And yeah. these sort of repetitive patterns that keep coming up. And I remember when you talked about it and then we did it in your front room. Right. With you, you did it on your Izumi life. And, right. My wife and I, and you and Johanna. And right. I think Johnny Nielsen was there too. But what I saw, not only what, what was, there was a many things, there were, there were many things that were interesting about it, but I also saw that it was also a tool for other people to give feedback. So when you just use the example of right. 
hey, your plus, you know, your minus is my plus. But I also saw it when we did it was other people were pointing out things in people they didn't see themselves. So there were certain blind dimensions of people's blind selves. You're not aware of. That you're not aware of, but people on your team are aware of it. Yes, and every time. So I thought that that was really powerful. Right. I mean, that's that ha this happened every time we've ever yeah. done it. Basically, yeah. you just make a list of the stuff you do. Right. And we're not aware of what we do, which is amazing. I mean, we, you know, we can get about, most people get about 10 things. Eight to 10 things are like, that's pretty much what I do every day. When you do this with your team, teammates, other people at work, they, they come up with another 10 things you're not consciously aware of. Right. And many of those things are circles for you. They're things you love to do. And you're not even aware that you're doing them. There's a, you're right, there's a block, right? Yeah, or it's just, you know, I mean, I think that's why people in functional teams and functional groups can be so powerful because you're just far more effective. I mean, there's there are limits to human reasoning and just human understanding. And we tend to see things in other people that, that are harder to see in ourselves or to notice. But the people that are around you every day, especially if they're aligned, right? If your values are aligned and they mm -hmm. care about you. Uh, it their capacity to help you be better or to be more functional or just simply to point out stuff that you need to potentially be aware well, of. Well, and for me, I really, really want everybody who works here to love doing their job because yeah. if everybody just did their circles, when they do, we are incredibly successful as a company. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you just took out the I care about you stuff and it strictly was a bottom line, you know, <laughs> I'm just trying to make money here. We would make more. We make more money when everybody's doing what they love, right? Which and is I think not. It's very counterintuitive to the world that we all live in in business. I don't necessarily think so because I think there are some there are some new thinkers in organizations. Well, I would leadership. say that we grew up with right this that we idea grew up of Americans have to work hard and it has to work be hard. really hard, hard and that will is a make you happy. Yes, and the really the exact opposite is the it's case. Exactly. Right? If right. you you know with conditions, I, I tell my team every time I go on vacation, this is absolutely true. Whenever I go on vacation, we get more work. Yeah, I'm like, well, maybe I need to not be here. Seriously, I mean. You know, I, I, I do need to be here, do the things that I do, but I get to do the things I love. Yeah. And it's just never work. Well, I want to ask you about the Cosmic Waitress. And I know you're supposed to be leading this. So no, no, no. I'm, this is a conversation. But I thought that that was so, that that part to me was really, really interesting. So explain I, that. Explain, explain well, what you're, So the idea is that you sort of put out there you know, what you aspire to or what you want. You try to visualize right. after, what you after, want to sort of After we kind of just go through the circle pluses and minuses and you look at your life basically yeah. like, whoa, that is the stuff I do and X amount of this I love and X amount of it I don't or, and I'm, and I'm okay with some of it. We do, you know, the next step is what what's missing in your life that mm -hmm. you don't have. Mm -hmm. And I purposely do that because it is really the hard, I think the hardest question you can ask anybody is what do you want? Mm -hmm. I, if you ask me that right now, I don't know, <laughs> mm -hmm. but I can, I can kind of tell you what I don't have. And so that, that is sort of an easy way to get into it. So we go through that. That's a really important list of what are the things you wish you had. Just wave your magic wand. You can, you know, these are things I, it can be anything. Stuff that you want. It can be, you know, peace of mind. It can be uh, whatever it is. People can pretty much get that list and go, yeah, I, man, I don't have those things, you know. And, it, and it's, I always tell people it's, I, you know, never on there is usually in the top three or four, five, seven is, is I'm missing money. Mm -hmm. Money's never in there. 
but like I need a space heater at my desk because it's cold. That's always number one, you know, or a window in my office because I don't have one. It's those things that people kind of talk about. And then the cosmic waitress came in when I just really believe that you get what you want when you ask it mm-hmm. and you put it into existence. So that showed up by, you know, I read, I just read a great book and this, there's a chapter called the cosmic waitress and, and I'm like, what, let's put your order in, you know, like I think that you should get what you want. And yeah. you know, we order a whiskey, it shows up. So now take that list of what you don't have and put it into the positive. Right. Yeah. And, and you did that. And how was your cosmic order? It was it, it, everything that I put into play manifested. I mean, it, not, not necessarily all of it immediately, but it, it all manifested. So, I mean, so it, everything I on your cosmic order happened. It did. <laughs> it did. Wow. Yes. And, and I also, you know, I, I think about it in terms of, um, I don't want to get too woo or too like academic, but, you know, quantum physics, right? That we're interconnected in. The observed and the observer are always connected in certain ways. And um, so I think we're, this a whole idea of duality of separation and can be limiting. And if there's a sense of sort of expanding your sense of awareness about your interconnectedness to all kinds of things, some things you can feel and some things you necessarily can't. I mean, you want to avoid magical thinking, right? Like I didn't put, I want to be point guard for the Zags. And, <laughs> Dunk a basketball at a ten foot hoop at the age of fifty four. <laughs> That's right, but I mean within Even though reason. You do <laughs> yes, small but slow guard, Frankie. I've seen you play. You still got game. Yeah, no, but uh, you could shoot it, Hazel. You could. We'll have to go play a game of horse. Or something. <laughs> All right, I'm yeah. down. I can shoot a little. But no, so I thought that that was really powerful, and it was, uh, and and then to experience that directly. So when you say quantum physics, you're meaning. The fact that what you think, what you think happens. Well, I, I mean, of. it's kind of, so. If you think about the early twentieth century physicists, right, that were doing these experiments that were producing all these paradoxes, that uh, the old model of like linear causality was kind of being thrown on its head in the quantum world. When they started doing these experiments, and it was it freaked everybody out. Like, I mean, Which- Einstein hated it. Call it spooky action at a distance, right? But so like Schrodinger and Neil Bohr's and some other physicists, Young and Bell, they started looking at, okay, the way the experiment turns out is dependent upon how the researcher himself or herself is asking the question. Mm-hmm. And it, it, was, it was a paradox. And so if you're looking for a particle, you lost you lost the capacity to to measure it as a wave and vice versa. And so they were just encountering all these paradoxes. And then the whole notion of like complementarity came into play where you can have these photons that are at really impossible to communicate with each other that are entangled. That's theories of entanglement that change instantaneously. So it defies the laws of what we view as conventional physics yet seems to be this axiomatic truth at, at the quantum level. This is where physics is happening right now. And so I think about that. Because I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I kind of do. The way I, here's how I look at it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, hey, you know, when you ask for this, it shows up. If you don't try, here, here's the trick with the Cosmic Waitress that I always tell everybody. And I wonder, I wonder if you did it, if you followed instructions. But what I tell everybody is, 
if I go, if you and I go to a Jack and Dance, the legendary bar at Gonzaga. Yes. Right. Uh, owned, owned by John Stockton and his dad, Jack, um, who, who started it. We order a whiskey. It shows up. And we don't think about it not showing up. We right. don't even think about anything. We just, there it is, and I'll pay the bill, right? Right. We don't try to make the whiskey, you know, get the mash, pour it, bring it in the truck, ring it up, deliver it. We, we just know it's going to show up, and we believe it's going to show up, and we expect it to show up, and it does. Yeah. And I think that's what will make your cosmic order come true that you put in with your cosmic, with the cosmic waitress is... If we if you put your order in and you don't try to actually figure out how to get all those things, but trust that it's coming your way, mm-hmm. do your part, but not dwell on it, it will show up better. Yeah, and I think that so where where it'll I show of, up. It may not show up if you try to. It won't show up if you try to figure it out. Interesting. I don't know. What because the I universe just is trying to give me that, and if I try to figure out how to get it done, it's then changing. It changes the order. So you'd sort of the physicist would say you turn it over to the field. Basically, okay. I like Some that. might say that, right? right? And I'm not a theoretical physicist, did, but did, that's you, what I responded to when you did when you did that because there's a lot of, I mean, in sports psychology and certain esoteric traditions and in this whole notion of visualizing something with intention tends to create the opportunity for that to manifest, right? Again, if local conditions are favorable and you don't want to, you know, not too much magical thinking. Right, you're not asking, but you're not, you never asked to be the point guard of the Gonzaga <laughs> on your cosmic maybe order. Maybe go out and Because ha- you're not going to get it, brother. Right. But uh, anyway, I didn't go, hope we didn't go off on too much of a tangent. No, no, no. But that's, that's what, what I resonated with. I mean, as, as much as anything, I love the process. But when you talked about the cosmic waitress and put it out there and ask for it, ask for it, and and hold that in mind in kind of a positive way, that resonates with a lot of like. Did you try to figure out how to get all those things to happen consciously, or did they just you know, sort of happen? I think some of it was you did your part. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you 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 make certain effort, right? That as much as anything, circle plus minus brought into my awareness things that I was doing that. I was not enjoying that mm-hmm. were draining. Right. And and so it existed. Other things were much more aspirational. It was more like a it was a wish, right? Right. It was an order. That that's that right. was kind of woo-woo, right? Right. When it, when it manifested. But I but it wasn't necessarily because, you know, in a lot of the Zen, a lot of um, Zen philosophy, Buddhist philosophy, different things in Japan, that's not weird, right? It might be weird here in the States. Um but it's it's not necessarily weird in other cultures, right? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. I think that's that. I think that's super true. Yeah. Um, well, so you're teaching at Gonzaga. You've been there for you said 17 years, yeah. right? COVID hits. What was that like? Because <laughs> I have a, you know we both have daughters in college, yeah, and you know I and I have a son in high school and. It has been really interesting from the parent side. What's it been like for you on the teaching side? On the teaching side. Well, it all happened so fast, right? I mean, one week we're at, it's the tournament in Vegas and spring Gonzaga, break. Gonzaga, yeah. And in the course of literally a week, everything was normal to completely shut down a lockdown. NBA cancels the season. So the university had a week to switch to, I mean, it was incredible, a week to switch to remote teaching. And wow. um, 
And fortunately, because I teach in a largely online hybrid program, we had kind of set up the infrastructure so the university could do that. You know, people, uh, every, every course had a blackboard shell. So it was a Herculean, amazing effort by everybody from the administration down to the techs to make that dramatic shift. And um, I was on one of the subcommittees of the pandemic task force and we were meeting weekly. Um, for our program personally, it was, we actually got better at what we did. We'd been using video technology, video conferencing for years and years, but new tools were starting to come online. Um, and we were able to kind of create tutorials and help other people get onboarded. Um, but that was a whole university-wide effort. The students were amazing. I mean, it was kind of just like we said, all right, look, we don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> let's cut some let's cut people slack. Let's be supportive. Um, they, they're our, here to learn. They're, gonna, they're trying yeah, to. In our graduate program, they were already there. They were adapting to emergency remote, right? And, and sometimes health problems, other disruptions. And so, you know, the general tone of our, our chair and our faculty was, look, let's, you know, it was a very Gonzaga thing to do, right? Just look, take them where they are. <laughs> let's try to think systemically. Let's try to push them to grow, but also be supportive. That worked out. I think... Pretty for, Jesuit thing. <laughs> very Jesuit thing. But I think for teachers that had just done traditional face-to-face -face and had never taught online before, it was more of a, it was more of a challenge because... I bet. You know, to do like really effective online teaching it's a just like the kind of work you do it's designed and it, oftentimes it's front-loaded and you're yep. using multiple tools and then you've got to know the technology really well but all things considered I mean it's pretty amazing how it all unfolded are you and teaching now still online yes our program is largely dis a distance program we have residency courses that students will come to and we but but our program so you've been you've been basically in your house cloistered this is your <laughs> father tony carthusian monk <laughs> mike finally gets to be the during monk. the pandemic i mean we'd go into the they had strict masking rules you go into the office very occasionally but it was just as efficient to set everything up in good thing backyard. you have a really cool house and basement <laughs> which i've been in and it is pretty trick comfy you, you got some cool yeah you got a cool spot we did go to a gonzaga game so we what did. so this was you know when we've when we you know record this we will this will have been the day was it the day after a couple of days after that they played bellerman yes. after they had beaten texas and stuff your first time back in the kennel yes in two years which since is since february yep 2020 and i've been in a couple of games before that but still fresh in mind you know that they ha i mean nobody played basketball when you and I are huge Gonzaga fans right in fact you and I used to be the halftime entertainment at Gonzaga basketball games when we were kids I don't know if you if you recall this but I sure do when we were in grade school at Gonzaga game, basketball games that's what the halftime entertainment they would go in the locker rooms and there'd the be a bunch of balls kid. and all the parochial kids would go out and just play pickup that's right we, that's right. we were the halftime entertainment Easier now, to get into games in those days. It is a, a different game now, right? So what was it like for you to be back? Well, first, thanks for the ticket. It was amazing. Oh, fun, Very of it was It was amazing. That's the first time I've been in a, you know, in a group or a crowd that size in over a year and a half. Um, 
and just to see the students back, uh, feel the energy, you know, when you haven't been in that, in, in that space, it hits you in a different kind of way. Um, so it was powerful. It was emotional, pretty emotional in a, in a really positive way. As much as anything, just, just the positive energy, right? <laughs> just to feel like, wow, okay, we've returned to a semblance of normal, new normal. Most right, of that right. Most of people. Um, and it was fab to see those amazing uh, kids live. I mean, yeah. they're, they're in, it's an incredibly talented crew. Yeah, we're going to geek out a little on Gonzaga basketball. Okay. Why not? Right. Why not? Okay, yeah. you ready to go? Yeah, we're Okay, ready. all right. So uh, here's what strikes me. Jalen Suggs, right, plays for Orlando now, the NBA. One, one and done player, comes to Gonzaga, highly touted, takes him to the national championship game, makes a buzzer beater against UCLA, which I was fortunately at. We wow. got to see live. Wow, wow. Yeah. It's a game. That's one that got to be one of the best top, games ever. Well, as I said, top five college basketball games in history. Nick and yeah. I were there, my son. I got to see it. Um, he never played in the kennel with fans. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That's I mean, he plays in the national championship game. They had the cardboard cutouts. Right. That's <laughs> cardboard. He's never, he never got the opportunity to play in front of fans. I just think that's unbelievable. It is. I mean, surreal times, really. Surreal times. So what's your assessment of this team? Our, our current Zags? Yes. Amazing. Loaded. Um, deep. Talented. And, I'm, I mean, I think the game, I mean, the way the, you know, the way the coaches operate now, the focus on defense, really tenacious for 40 minutes. They're, they're just so big. Yeah. Too. You know what I mean? Like, I look at... Andrew Nimhart, their point guard, and he looks small on that court. Relatively, he's six five. That's, now I remember that's the day when, and this is John Stockton we're talking about, right? If he's six one, six one in shoes, uh, and thick socks, and right? high heels. Yeah. <laughs> Man, can he play? I mean, and that was the Gonzaga guard, the five eleven, you know, five mm-hmm. eleven white kid, you know, point guard. Slow, but could shoot it and manage the manage stuff. Stockton was quick. Stockton was, was incredibly quick. quick, incredibly quick. Well, and yeah, he. My brother got a chance to uh, went went to high school with John, and he um, always told the story about the second year John was playing. Jim had been in Seattle, mm-hmm. and he was like went down when the Sonics were crappy, and he's like, you know, sees John, and John's like, "What are you doing here?" And he's like, "Do you have any wheels? Can we go out? Let's go out." So he like he and John go get a beer afterwards in oh, Seattle before you know they had enough time to get him back to the hotel or whatever. And he's just like, "What is it like?" And he goes, "It was so surreal because he goes, it's so surreal." He goes, "Honestly, these guys are really slow. They're just big and slow, and I'm just it's just easy for me. I, you know, he's so quick, right? It was not difficult. Yeah. But he goes, there were times when." I have to stop and catch myself and go, oh my God, I am guarding, you know, Magic Johnson right now. Right. That's Larry Bird. You had to like shake it off because it was just, he couldn't believe where he was, you know, from a kid who, you know, grew up at St. Al's and Spokane playing, you know, just kind of a gym rat. And then all of a sudden, you know, makes the Olympic game and all of a sudden he's in the NBA and number one pick. It was just so unlikely mm-hmm. that that happened. And because of that, everything unlikely has happened to Gonzaga over the last 20 years, right? That we've gotten to see this whole emergence of how they've done it and built it from, you know, nothing to 
to now, you know, arguably the best program in the in the country. Truly and amazing. Truly amazing to see. And honestly, what I've noticed is just the size. I mean, these guys are. There, there were player, you know, and and Mark Few will talk about it. There's guys who are, you know, that that have played for him over the years who could absolutely play today on this team, but as many as they have with that much talent, and honestly, I think compared to last year, room to grow. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of incredible talent that will be so much better. That's what struck me by that game was. Mm-hmm. There are five freshmen on the floor right now, you know, holding their own. And at the end of the year, a couple of them are probably going to be the best players. I mean, it's yeah. truly remarkable to see. It is. And it's it's great, again, to go see them live because you just have – you can see the entire court. So you see how they're moving without the ball. Uh, their physicality – their quickness. I mean, it was. Yeah, it was they really are playing something. defense. Their defense was spectacular. It was. It was not something we grew up with watching. <laughs> this no, was an offensive no, juggernaut, but not a def- defensive thing. Tommy Leg gets his first uh, big win. Amazing, right? We were talking. Yes, uh, and I turned on that game by accident at, at Arizona playing halftime. Michigan. Arizona playing Michigan last, last night. night, and it was uncanny to me how much that team, the Arizona team, reminded me of how the Zags play. Like, uncanny. And <laughs> they dominated number four Michigan. Absolutely dominated. Embarrassed them. Embarrassed them. And, uh, yeah, I, I, they're going to be formidable. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, Tom, Tommy's, uh, he, you know, I, I think I call him a good friend. I mean, I don't see him that much because he's been so busy forever and ever. But he was a grad assistant at Gonzaga. Yeah. And we worked on the highlight reel, we would produce the video for Gonzaga for 10 years that would recruit players. And so there was always a grad assistant that would be the guy that oversaw that Mm -hmm. from, from, from Gonzaga. Billy Greer was the first guy that we worked with and he was, you know, became Mark Few's assistant, became the head coach at San Diego. Now is the head assistant at Colorado. Um, And, and Tommy was the next guy. And Tommy had it for the longest. He and I worked on that thing for maybe five years together. And I I remember, you know, just, you know, how he he still has that kind of like, like he's a big kid, you know, about him that that I still is so endearing. I think people just love because he's super honest. But I I remember looking him in the eye, you know, in an edit suite, drinking beer, um, putting together this highlight reel um, and buying him burgers because he, couldn't afford it. I mean, these guys were making 5,000 a year to a guy now that makes 3 million a year. Mm-hmm. Um, telling him, Tommy, you're going to, you're going to run a major program in this country. You're going to run a major basketball program and you're going to be really good. And he was like, ah, we'll see. But I, I you know, I re- strictly remember that. And I, I texted him that the morning he uh, did his introductory uh, press conference in April when he got the job and he texted me right back. And it was pretty cool to mm-hmm. see, that's, I think, the key to that. That a big part of that program is that they don't forget. They don't forget the people that kind of helped them get there when they were, when it was lean, and it was. I mean, that yeah. you know that school almost shut down. I mean, you know that your dad knows that. Yeah. It was it was on the it was teetering in basketball, like it or not. If you're at that university, it is it is it has saved it. Yeah, well, it certainly helped. I mean, it was it was. It's a great academic institution. I'm not saying that basketball is why that place is. Is, is is a great school, but it the revenue was a huge part of it. Well, right, and it's got, I mean, the basketball has obviously raised the sea level, and it's 
its footprint. I mean, it's had a huge impact across the board in a lot of ways. And it's fun. It is fun. It's but I think fun. of Tommy Lloyd. So when I was at when I first got to G, I would teach summer speech classes, and oftentimes it was the transfer players or new players coming in, and I teach those. Guys. Oh wow, like cool! So who'd you Mike, teach? Uh, let's see. Uh, Micah Downs. Remember Micah Downs? Micah Downs, totally. Yeah. Sean Mallon. Yeah, sure. Um, who taught my daughter? Yeah. Well, her favorite teacher at Ferris when she went to school yeah. there. And I, Courtney Vandersloot taught some. Oh, Courtney! Yeah. I got to meet Courtney. Courtney is amazing. Amazing. amazing I got to I got to do a commercial with her yeah. right before right after she graduated. It was a highlight. It's so for great me. to see she, her. I'm so proud of her. So successful. I'm not surprised. Kind yeah. of. She's amazing. Our brothers, but. And I think of how hard those coaches worked, you know, and Tommy and others like him on other teams. They're constantly on the road. They're traveling. They're scouting. Um, it's a grind. I remember, right, when, like, Greer and Few, when we were at our senior years, I think when Mark Few came. And, right. He was an assistant back then. For, yeah. Fitz was the coach. F- Dan Fitzgerald was He coach, came into our were, dorm. He came. I remember Fitz came into DeSmet. Because the basketball, we, we lived with the basketball players. We lived with all the basketball players. Jim McPhee yeah. and, Brent and uh, Doug Spradley yeah. and all those guys were, were two doors down from us. And he, Fitz came in and met all of us and said, hey, I want you guys to come to the game. Mm-hmm. You know, like we were the first kennel club dudes, kind of. I mean, the, the, they were not getting students <laughs> to the games. Anybody could get a ticket, man. I mean, it was yeah. rough. Yeah. So, no, it's, it's fantastic to see Tommy Lloyd's success and... I, he will be successful. I don't want to play Arizona. <laughs> I don't want to play watch. It would be it would be quite I, the matchup. Well, you know, they were supposed to play this year. Were they? Yeah. I they were scheduled and Few said, Hey Tommy, I don't, I want you to get some, I want you to get off to a good start. You don't yeah. need to be playing us. Yeah. Because that's not gonna give you a good start. Now I think Few's going, Hey Tommy. <laughs> I think he's really glad they didn't schedule him. Because <laughs> they looked that team is is I mean, really good. They got they got all the pieces. They got all the pieces to make a long run. I, yeah. I mean, that's well. A you remember? Team. Remember in the uh, in the tournament a couple years ago, GU was matched up against UNC Greensboro. Yes. And Kyle Bankhead was the assistant. Yes. For UNC Greensboro. That's right. And they took GU down to the oh, wire. Yeah. Well, Billy Greer was it one one in a sixteen. Yeah, right. Billy yeah. Greer leaves. Yeah. Goes to, go to, to San, San Diego. Diego. Right, takes a head coaching job. What's yeah. he doing his first year? He wins the West Coast Conference tournament and goes to the NCAA tournament. His only trip there, by the way. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, those guys know they know the slot. You know, Tommy knows. He, the ch- he, it's a, part of it's a chess game. Part of it's a chess game. Yeah, and they're in good, they're both in good shape. I think it's a yeah. better. It was a great move for both of them. They're both going to succeed pretty well. One of the things that we also do, you and I, which we're do, I, I want to talk about is we visit old school Spokane. This is your idea. Absolutely. T- tell me tell me about the uh, dive tour that you and I... I like to call it vintage restaurant tour, frankly. Okay, well, there's a difference between the cake eater <laughs> and the north side kid. <laughs> that sounds much more judgmental. Than <laughs> 100%. So what do we do? T- explain what we do. It's pretty so cool. So it's pretty cool because we are both huge Spokane boosters growing and, up here. And you picked this like five years ago. I remember you telling me, Mike, I'm telling you, Spokane is going to be the next big thing. A lot of people are going to move here. It's going to kind of It's the best mid-sized city. Well, I travel a lot. Cultural, you know? creative. I've traveled the last 15 years and I would go to places and it'd be like dead. And this town, it's 
you know, you can get, you know, a, a late night menu at two in the morning on a weekend. I mean, there's a lot going on here. And I'm like, this city is killing it. And Portland, Seattle, you can't afford to live there anymore. All the cool people are moving here. I mean, that's, there's been a migration mm-hmm. here of really creative people. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Zach, who's producing this podcast from Chicago, when would you ever get a kid from Chicago moving to Spokane? Are you kidding me? Right. With tons of talent and interesting, you know. So, so I, yeah, I mean, so that was part of it was this town's getting cool, but there's a lot of cool places here that. Yeah, off the beaten track. And I think it was sort of an homage to growing up here. Right. And just kind of, you know, old school Spokane. Right. So what we, we, what we, we haven't done this in a while. We have to uh, kick this we back do. into gear. Yeah. Now that COVID interrupted it. Now that you're back out in the public. <laughs> That's right. Um, so I think we would, we would each pick a restaurant every month. And we try to make it as kind of kitschy and out of the way. Right. So where have we gone? So we just to have breakfast, right? It was usually yeah. One of my favorite. This is probably my favorite. Is the Skyway Cafe. Oh, unbelievable! Skyway Cafe, Art Deco, Municipal Airport, out at Feltz. Feltz Field, where my dad learned to fly at Mm sixteen on grass runways. Yeah. Yeah, and it still has such a cool. It's diner. It's, it's unbelievable. Oh, it's really cool. It's really cool. We have been. Let's see where else we've we been. Did we go we've to been, the Mingwa? We've been to the Mingwa for lunch. Absolutely. That's a rare lunch uh, uh, excursion, but we had to go to the Mingwa, which is, man, divey, <laughs> but good Chinese food over on Third Avenue. Yeah. Azars. <laughs> Azars. We did go to Azars. Excellent. A great Mediterranean. We had lunch. I guess we had more and then, than one yeah, lunch. And then we went to. Let's see where else have we gone. Of course, we've gone to uh, your Ferguson's. Frank's, Frank's. Ferguson's Cafe. Ferguson's Cafe, where Corner Booth was was born. Was born. Yeah. Frank's Diner. Frank's Diner. We did go there. Is How about we've been to the chalet? No, we have not been to the, the chalet. The chalet has not changed its decor <laughs> since probably 1968. Well, you'd know because that's your neighborhood. That's, that's mine right. now. I mean, I talk Seriously. like I'm not a cake eater. Okay, we gotta, probably have to go too. to the chalet next. All right, chalet next? Chalet next. Well, you there seems like there's those. some other places we've been, but I, maybe that's it. Yeah, it's awesome though. Okay, Chalet it is. Yeah, we haven't represented, we haven't gone south side yet. We need to go up there, South Hill. Check it out. All right, all right. We're on. You're on for that. Um, I, I, I should have said this at the beginning, but we'll probably have four of these podcasts because you and I could talk about a lot of stuff. A ton of which, maybe next time we can talk about just the world of social media and what it's yeah. done. Because that's really your, that's your bailiwick, right? A big part, or you've studied it anyway. I mean, I've studied it. It's not my area. It's not my, I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of subfields within com, right? Social media is taking on, digital media strategies and social media is taking on its own subgenre, uh, subdiscipline. But I mean, we can talk about it in all, at all kinds of levels, right? Pluses and minuses. So what do you, when you look at that whole world of communications, what are you, what are you excited about? What scares you? Maybe maybe we'll talk about it next time. But what what excites you? I think that social media, well, with the discipline and training and understanding of how to use it and to be inoculated against the social engineering, like these very powerful al- algorithms, hard to do. Easier to say, hard to do. But really, getting people involved in understanding media literacy, how media operates, and how much time the information, misinformation and disinformation is intentional and it's 
it's effective. So if you can somehow teach your children or you yourself become aware of how you're being subtly and overtly manipulated, I think that would be powerful. With that, what an utterly amazing tool. Right, the connections. In terms of the connections you make, independent journalism, uh, culturally creative things, music, food, um, yeah. travel. Right, all the good uh, stuff doesn't get talked great about. Great ways to, right, great. Uh, I mean, there's incredible art that's happening oh. on digital media. And oh. so it's a sort of great equalizer. Everybody's Instagram page is yeah. amazing. Yeah. I mean, I know. So I think it can be a phenomenally powerful tool. Yeah. For good. I also think it's creating, as much as it has a, a dark side, it's creating a greater awareness of the world. Yeah. Right? So Taking us to places we wouldn't otherwise get a right. chance to. And and creating sort of communities of interest. It's connecting people mm-hmm. in ways that it had never That's done true. before. That's true. Yeah. So, you know, it's, we're, it's still... It's early. I think our technology has advanced far beyond our social and spiritual I mean, development. I do, I do too. I think, you know... I mean, I, I don't want to get into it here, but I, I think a lot of what's happened on the dark side of it, we, you know, this is my own gut feeling, but you know, when, when TV started, it was this magical thing. And then along comes a guy named McCarthy who goes, wait a minute, I can manipulate the hell out of this. Almost gets away with it and then doesn't get away with it. And then we went, oh, okay, wait a minute. There's this thing called the FCC and there's rules about how you can do that or not. And we kind of learned Right, you get this new thing, and then you discover, oh, there's some things here that aren't great about it, and then you put some parameters around it, and by and large, it it was they were good, you know, they were good parameters. And now here comes social media and this whole world of the internet, and I think we're at that same stage. I think we're at that same stage of, oh, wait a minute, (laughs) you you can see the good stuff out of the box, and then you start seeing the things that aren't so great about it. So I I am like you. I think I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we can figure out ways to be aware of what it, what it can do and not. And we're still learning that. So many people have no idea you know, how to use it and what it's, what well, it's, it's been used generational for. You know? too, it right? is that big time generational. Digital natives. I mean, there are kids. And oh, I would say that's all a kids. downside. But at an extremely young age, it, it's an appendage. Yeah. To, so yeah, one exactly. of the things that's interesting is we had to memorize a lot of stuff, right? Yeah, we yeah, didn't yeah. have access yeah. to that. Phone number. And I see my... Right, exactly. I used to remember your phone number. I have no idea what my daughter's phone number is. Right, right. So when I interact with young people, especially in just a more you know, unvarnished, casual environment, their device is part of how they communicate. So you start talking about something, and then I think they're being really rude because they immediately go to their device. And then what they did is they looked it up. Right. They were actually trying to continue the conversation. Right. Or to get some... I do that. And it's so that's sort of that's really interesting. Yeah. So I think it'll be interesting to see how it evolves over the next ten to twenty, thirty years. Yeah. But we're we're I mean It's an amazing was, world. When the no iPhone came what. out it was only what, two thousand seven when the first iPhone came out? Unbelievable. But it utterly changed. I mean, well, I mean we you know, the digital turned, yeah. the digital media campaigns we run now it's pretty sophisticated kinda of all over the West. We didn't, that was not part of the business that we do five years ago, six, seven, six years ago, six or seven years ago. The first year we did that. It was like, this is unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I can't believe that that, all the things we do now that we didn't even, wasn't even on our radar and it's changed my business for the better. And it's a really cool way to kind of communicate. So we can talk about those things in the future. If you had your, if I give you your magic wand and in your world of, of education and all that stuff, this will be the last question. Yeah. And you could wave it. What what would you want to have happen? In education? Yeah. 
Wow. I, so or, or the or the world of communications. World of communication. Your choice. It's a tough question because you're thinking of you know, preschool through doctoral and postdoctoral and technical yeah. training. So I didn't say it was going to be easy, Hazel. <laughs> okay, this isn't a cakewalk. Come on. In the world of education, not necessarily related to social media. No. Okay. Just what what do you what do you wish would happen? You get to you get to change it all. You're the you're the you're the king of the world. I think. Emotional intelligence, empathy, uh, the capacity to think critically from multiple perspectives, and then the capacity to sort of be aware of how your own positions really influence your emotions and beliefs. You want that, that to happen more often. I'd like that to be, I'd like people to learn more about how, and I don't mean this in a negative way, just how inherently limited we are. And, but not in a way, not in a self-deprecating, judgmental way, but in a way that's potentially empowering, right? Because if we know social science and behavioral psychology, all not just behavioral, but all fields of psychology point to that humans, they resonate with people they have affinity with. They want to be parts of groups. And actually, they get... You know, the, the brain changes when you've got an enemy. You, the brain changes when you feel like Something's you're part of a different. group. Right, and you see it, it manifested in positive ways among fans, right? You see the way the GU students kind of go after... The refs, <laughs> you know, the opposing right? team. And the opposing team and the opposing coaches. I'm sure GU is going to be facing that on the road. In <laughs> oh, you think so? <laughs> but, but there's sort of almost like a healthy way to channel it. Um, it so sort of teaching... Uh, kids at a younger age, but even adults to sort of, how do you manage those feelings? How do you manage those emotions? Um, how do you notice when you're being manipulated in ways? Uh, I think is incredibly important because as we can see how polarized our societies have become, um, that sort of level of self-awareness, I think will help us to be more effective in not being the not being manipulated or being potentially being the master of the technology rather than the other way around. Yeah, and I think the empathy word is really interesting too. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. I think that, I mean, you know, I, they always say that, you know that the the people that become president come along because they have something that we all really want, you know, and that empathy that like Biden won on that, you know, like hey man. It's time to care again a little bit here, you know. I don't think that's miss. I don't think you're you're wrong about that. I don't think that's the only reason he won. I don't even get into that, but but there is. I think we are all uh, craving it in, yeah, a way, in, in a way that we hadn't, you know. And and I think you're probably right about that. Um, prediction: Gonzaga, UCLA. Who's going to win Tuesday night? Tomorrow night? Zags. Number one, number two. Zags. Absolutely by ten. Frankie, what about you? Well, I will be courtside. What you leave Friday. Okay. I leave, well, that's I leave right. Wednesday. That's right. I will be Friday. Uh, for the Duke game. Duke, Gonzaga. Awesome. 40-yard line. Center court. You always do that so well, well, Frank. You've got all the sweet hookups. Life's short. <laughs> that's right. Okay. That's I right. And you're going to be around a long time. It. I don't know. You are the cake eater now, and I appreciate you sharing it with the lowly. I am not a cake friend. eater. I'll never be a cake oh. eater. No, no, no. Uh, my blood's not blue enough for that, Hazel. The uh, I'll be there courtside against Duke. I think they're going to be Duke. UCLA's going to be. I mean, I was there. It was there for the last one, 
that overtime game was, I, you know, I, uh, I was with, in fact, he's going to be a guest here, uh, I think, in a couple of weeks, Kevin Parker. Right. Who is an amazing guy, um, was a state senator, uh, owns the Dutch Bros. He was on our board at Gonzaga. Was it? Yeah. Just, well, just, a, just a, 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 such a cool dude. He was, Nick and I were with him and his wife watching that game, wow. standing right next to each other at UCLA. <clears throat> and I, we all experienced this unbelievable thing where time stopped. And I, I'm sure it wasn't the case watching it on TV, but in that building, and he said this to me when I asked him, would you be on the podcast? Couple, I talked to him a couple of days ago, and he's like, hey, do you, do you remember when he made that? There, there was a moment of nothing. That really, that, that whole Zen idea of nothingness. Mm-hmm. He makes the shot, and I swear there was no sound, no nothing for a beat. And it seemed like a good beat. <laughs> it seemed like a second. And Nick said the same thing where, did he make that? Went through everyone's mind. And then crazy pandemonium. Just absolute insanity. But there was a moment in the building where time stood still. And I can't explain it. I that's, can't explain it. And he, he said the same thing. And we both remember. That's probably what I remember the most from that game. It's one of those flashbulb memories. And I mean, well, he, you know, he, jumps up on, from, he jumps up on the table. Yeah. And he points. And he's pointing right at us. That's oh. where our seats were. And it was just super surreal. And Nick actually captured it on video. That's so Which cool. is really cool. Uh, so I don't know. I, I think you said it's got a little revenge in their mind. <laughs> I heard people say, you said it's going to win tomorrow and Duke's going to win. On Friday, or because I go win on Friday against Duke. If we lose I, I this season, I'd much rather prefer it during the regular. This is season. the time to lose it. Yes. Yeah. I don't think they're going to lose. I think they're going to win them both. I think Timmy's unstoppable. It's going to be incredible. Um, thank you. Thank you, Frankie. Thanks for your friendship and and you know for do we'll do this again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, it was fantastic. I, I owe you. <laughs> I mean, you know, for after, sleep mate. After sleep mate. Thanks again to Mike Hazel, professor of leadership studies and communications at Gonzaga University and my former roommate in college and the most interesting person you've now heard of. Thanks also to my crack producer, Zach from Easy Productions, boy genius producer, sound engineer and composer of our epic theme music, Nick Swoboda. MIP podcast was filmed at the studio of Corner Booth Media. Please sure to like, subscribe and follow us on social media. You can also listen to us on Spotify, Apple Music, and anywhere podcasts can be found.